Hello, and welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. David, uh, welcome. Thanks, Tom. We have a very special guest today, a friend of mine, Mark Owens, who will explain in detail why he's such a great friend and such a great story. But um, Mark is a gentleman who I met, how many years ago, Mark? What, five years ago? And he's going to tell you a story today. Uh, yeah. And Mark's somebody who is a gentleman who represents one of the reasons I'm writing my new book, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? And he's going to tell a story. He wrote the um, forward to my book. Uh, he's a gentleman who spent many years in Africa. And he's a PhD scientist. He is continues to work on the environment. And I'll, we'll explain that a little bit also. But Mark is a special guest today. He's going to tell a story how he got into pain, how he got out of pain. But we've asked him to do that for this first episode and actually tell a story about his background and who he is and what drove him to do, do what he does. But we really appreciate Mark taking the time to be with us today. So uh, Mark, um, let me introduce yourself a bit. Okay. Um, well, hi, everybody. <laughs> I suppose my story really begins at a lecture hall at the University of Georgia back in, let's see, when was it? 1970, <laughs> a few years ago. And, and I was sitting there with my soon-to-be wife, Delia, and we were listening to a guest lecture talk about all the disappearing wildlife in Africa. He'd just come back from Africa, and he was giving a talk at the university, obviously. And uh, he was particularly talking about the loss of the apex carnivores, the high-level. Those were precisely the animals Delia and I were interested in studying and doing research on. And so... We looked at each other in horror and said, holy cow, we have to, they're all going to be gone before we get there. So we both shared this dream of going to Africa and discovered we'd only met that, that very quarter, a few weeks earlier. And uh, so we discovered right away, we shared a dream of going to Africa and doing research on wildlife. And uh, well, we were horrified by what this lecture was saying. And um, we said, we have to do something about this, and being young, idealist, idealistic students. And uh, how, how old were you at the time? So anyway, um, oh, I was 29, well, no, 20, 27, actually. Okay. And uh, Delia was 22. And um, so anyway, we, we just um, almost immediately decided we had to drop everything and get over to Africa and start our research before it was all gone these animals were all gone so we started talking to professors and so forth and they were all naysayers all oh, you can't everybody wants to go to africa they said and nobody has the budget and you'll have to go as part of somebody else's phd program none of which appealed to us at all we wanted to do our own thing so anyway to cut straight to the chase we left the university program temporarily if somewhat prolonged period and uh, began working to earn our own money to get over to africa and um I tried teaching and so did Delia for about six months and that didn't earn us anything, any money. So as teachers would affirm. Uh, and uh, so I ended up uh, operating the stone crushing plant and a stone quarry and uh, Delia worked in department stores and gift shops and things to, as well. And anyway, uh, we were 
trying to make our, uh, one morning I woke up and turned on the news and the news was all about how the Arabs had just pulled the plug on cheap oil and airfares were skyrocketing. And I turned to dealing. I said, we have got to go now or we'll never go. So we literally jumped out of bed, piled everything into her station wagon, drove to the stone quarry where I just worked all night. And we caught the men coming off the night shift and uh, with their paychecks. It was a Friday morning. And uh, we right then and there st stood on top of her car and auctioned everything we owned away, including our wedding gifts, and uh, to, to, to try to generate enough money to launch our own field research project in Africa. And uh, with that money, we bought one-way tickets and uh, a backpack and a sleeping bag, and we packed not much more than a change of clothes each and pencils, pad, and paper, and binoculars, and a camera, and that was about it. And I think we had just about $6,000 to realize wow. our dream of wildlife research in Africa. Wow. And uh, which is why we didn't want to buy a two-way ticket because that would have taken too much of our field research money. So right. anyway, we went to Africa, um, flew one more off the January 4th of 1974 and, and uh, flew to South Africa and caught a flight into Zimbabwe and, and started making our way around the country looking for a place to study um, these large carnivores. And in that, that particular time, we were looking to study cheetahs and, uh, and uh, in some wild place where they'd never been affected by human economic endeavors and so forth, ranching or whatever. And um, anyway, the long and short of it was we, we finally bought a third-hand Land Rover we called the Gray Goose, which had been an ex-government vehicle and owned by two other owners since then. And, it was a mess and we didn't have money for spares really or anything. So anyway, I fixed that up as best I could and outfitted it. Um, we made friends with someone we stayed with, et cetera. And, and then we just took off and started driving around Southern Africa looking for a research study site and made our way into Botswana and uh, then to the Northern part of the country in Botswana where we met an old uh, saf safari hunter who said, hey, I've seen a, I've never been there on foot, but I've seen this place called Deception Valley in the central Kalahari Desert, um, south of the village of Maun in the northern part of Botswana. And he said, you ought to go there and try. He said, we've had the worst rains that we've had in ever in the history of record keeping, over 40 inches, if you can believe that, in a country like Botswana, which is mostly sub-desert. And uh, he said, the only dry place you're going to find and be able to work is in the desert. So on his advice, we, we took off. He said, go 99 miles back out the main road back toward Francistown and look at 99 miles. Look to your right. You'll see a broken palm tree. Turn right there. You'll see some faint tire tracks in the grass. Just follow those for a few days. <laughs> so, wow. We did. And uh, I mean, it's just striking. We, had, story. we filled our land. Yeah. I mean, it's just striking. Story. Ahead, I mean, tell about most people. I mean, talk about the courage of your conviction. I mean, you went from having no money, auctioning your possessions, heading off to Africa without any real equipment or backing, and you're in a third, third owner Land Rover heading off into the middle of nowhere. Uh, without, did you, have any, did you have any, did you have a gun? 
Did you have any? No, no, we didn't have any firearms. Nothing. Any, no, no, okay. we didn't even have it. We didn't even have a tent. We were sleeping in the Land Rover. Oh my goodness! Or on the ground, stop for the night, and uh, and uh, yeah, we over a period of weeks, we and uh, through three failed attempts, we finally found our way into Deception Valley, um, covered with grass seed, mud, and sand, and. Uh, Right away, we knew we were in a very special place because we crested this tall forested dune, sand dune, and looked down on this fossilized river valley that the Bushmen had named Deception in their language because from a distance at certain times of the year, the clay fossil riverbed looked like it was actually had water in it, which it hadn't had for 16,000 years. And as we would soon learn, um, so we, but what we did see on this old fossil riverbed from that dune top that, that afternoon were herds and herds and herds of antelope and, and uh, it, it was just, it was like looking at Eden. This profusion of wild animals on this short grassed old fossil riverbed plain, it was just amazing. And even more amazing when we drove down the dune slope and entered uh, the fossil riverbed, these animals barely parted. They weren't afraid of us at all. Uh, they were just more curious than anything. We drove right through a herd of 3,000 springbuck, which just sort of parted, barely stopped grazing while they parted and let us go through and um, otherwise didn't pay any attention to us at all. And we looked at each other and we said, what have we found here? That's well, I mean, we should have told us it was, it was so difficult to get there. We, the logical conclusion was, well, these animals had never seen humans in trucks before. And um, anyway, we decided this has got to be our study site. Wow. It's, it's an Eden concentrated on an old fossil riverbed right in front of us. Never anything, nothing here has ever been studied. Let's give it a go. So we, uh, <laughs> we drove this to a clump of trees and, and um, took a and uh, set up camp. Well, camp amounted to hanging some tin can tins of food and on a shelf from a tree, and uh, and putting a fire grate on the ground and collecting some firewood and and uh, stacking a putting an equipment box under the tree, and that was about it. And we didn't, like I said, we didn't have a tent, so we slept on the ground or in the back of the truck. Um, for the first year and a half that we were there, but we be began exploring this unexplored area. And uh, we would eventually learn that we were the only two people in an area the size of Ireland, other than a few bands of roaming Bushmen who we never saw in the entire time we were there, except from the air when I was flying. And, uh, and we were soon to learn uh, that the animals were going to tell us by their behavior that they hadn't seen humans before because we uh we stay we, we started having these incredible uh encounters um we we like i as i was saying we we slept on the ground for for much of that first year then eventually a safari company gave gave us an old ripped out cabin wall tent that i set up under a clump of trees and and uh we had I think it was the third night we'd slept on the floor of that tent. Now this tent was so ripped out, I couldn't even close the flaps on the, of the, the door flaps. Uh, 
and there were big rips in the side and and everything and uh <laughs> so I just tied the the flaps open because they were just getting in the way because you couldn't zip them up at night or anything. Anyway, it was I think the third night we were out sleeping there, and I I was awakened by a pressure on my right foot. We were sleeping on a a piece of foam rubber on the floor of the tent, and I woke up sometime in the night and uh, with this pressure on my right foot and what sounded like scrub brush bristles. Uh, sort of making a sound, a, a shishing sound against my nylon sleeping bag. And immediately I thought of a snake. I felt this slow pressure moving up my right leg. And I thought, oh, it's got to be a puff adder, which is a very poisonous snake. And uh, I reached behind my head from my flashlight and I was going to club this thing if it got too, too close to my face. And, and uh, but then I heard the sounds of squeaks and rumbles and I thought no snake I've ever heard of ever makes that kind of a sound what's going on here and so I lifted my head up and looked over my feet I was sleeping on my back and there was just enough starlight that I could make out the outline of the trees against the night sky beyond the tent but <laughs> silhouetted within that was a silhouette of of not one but two enormous male lions who were standing in the tent with us. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and this, the lions had obviously eaten something because it was their stomachs making these squeaks and rumbles that I thought was a snake. <laughs> anyway, I rolled to my left and I put my hand over Delia's mouth and I said, shh, the lions are here, Delia. And she opened her eyes and she said, where? And I said, shh, <laughs> they're, at our, wow. they're in the tent with us. <laughs> Oh my goodness. And her eyes opened up and really wide and I said, Don't make a move. Just let's just lie here. So we did. We lay they probably smelled of our feet and our sleeping bags for three or four minutes, maybe five minutes, which was a long five minutes, by the way. Right. And uh and then they turned around and left the tent and started walking through camp and we got up stark naked and walked right behind them. I mean, within three or four or five yards behind them as they moved through the foot along the footpath through camp and they went to our what we call the kitchen which was just a some water drums and and uh a box of groceries and things and some mealy meal or cornmeal tied in a bag in a tree and onions uh hanging from the tree and so forth anyway they had fun with all that and tore tore the bag of cornmeal out of the tree and showered it all over themselves and sneezed and then they got into the onions, which had their predictable effect. And they were sneezing with all that. And anyway, then they kind of tore up kitchen, the, the so-called kitchen a little bit. And, uh, and uh, we just stood and watched them. And then they, they, as this dawning, as it was dawning, they just stroke, peed on a tree and, uh, and to mark their territory. And then they walked out and lay down in the sh short grass of the fossil riverbed. And we walked, right out uh, behind them and sat down right behind them about five yards away and watched the sun rise over their shoulders. So oh my goodness. And you can long, tell they've never you, been alien. How, how long have you been in Africa when this occurred? How long have you been there when this happened? About, about a year oh my goodness. at that point. Well, the reason I wanted you to, to yeah. – I hadn't actually heard this part of the story, which is incredibly fascinating, but you went from being two young students to – get rid of all your possessions, raising money, 
flying to Africa, buying a Land Rover, going out into the wilderness with no resources, really, no idea exactly where you're going to go, no real weapons, and found a place that no, essentially no humans had been in before. And the reason why I wanted to tell, have you tell this part of the story is to give people a feel of who you are, which is an unusual human being. Most people don't have the courage of the convictions like you and Delia did. I mean, it's an unbelievable story. Um, I'd like you, if you wouldn't mind, fast forward a little bit to the end and then work backwards towards the middle. Is that how long were you in Africa? Um, a total of 23 years, David. And then I know, how long, were you, how long were you in that valley before the, um, the poachers and stuff came in there? Well, we, it wasn't in that valley. We were, we were in Botswana in the Central Kalahari Desert in Deception Valley for almost eight years. And, uh, and then we, I, when we f were finished there, we, we uh, translocated our camp up north about 1,100 miles to the country of Zambia and set up a project in the uh, northern end of the Rift Valley in a place called North Luangwa National Park. And there we took on a cartel of commercial poachers uh, who had already killed 100,000 elephants in 10 years before we got there. And you, I'm knew sorry? That, you knew that before you went there that you're taking on a cartel of poachers? No, you no, no, we didn't know anything. No, this park was had the reputation of being the Cinderella Park really? of Zambia. It was not supposed to have been covered by. It wasn't developed. There were no roads. There was, there were no buildings. It was just a park on paper only, and we thought it had. It was wide open, and, and in fact, the, the depart, director of national parks for Zambia said, "Yes, please go there. Tell us whatever you find. We don't know anything about that park. It's never been developed, and so." Okay. Um, we found our way into that park uh, and uh, set up camp and a, a primitive camp and started doing a reconnaissance of the area. Uh, we wanted to study um, lions again and compare them with the lions we'd known in the desert in, in uh, Botswana. And um, it was while we were doing that reconnaissance, we were actually having breakfast around our campfire one morning. And the rattle of uh, automatic weapons fire came from nearby. And I grabbed Dilly by the collar and shoved her behind a tree and got behind it with her. We thought we were being shot at. It was that close. And, uh, wow. and uh, we waited for a while. And when the gunfire quit and uh, we, we thought it might be safe, we kind of made our way out in that direction from where the gunfire had sounded and found that a family of elephants had been killed. Oh my and the ivory had been cut off. Uh, the women cut off and that's when you uh, found for their ivory point. and uh that's that was our introduction to the the problem of poaching in the north Luangwa national park and uh and as i said they'd already killed a hundred thousand elephants in the entire valley in that one valley in, in the previous 10 years and they were our aerial surveys would soon reveal that they were still killing a thousand a year in that park alone Wow. Never mind the rest of the valley. And uh, only a thousand elephants left to save. I'm sorry, uh, they were still killing a thousand a year, only 5,000 left to save. And so we decided we had to forget about a study of lions and try to do something about the poaching. 
I'd like to jump way in the story because I mean, what you accomplished was pretty remarkable. And I, um, by the way, he wrote a book, Mark and Delia wrote a book called The Cry of the Kalahari. They wrote two other, it was a best-selling book. What year was that published, Mark? Uh, 1985. Yeah, it's an incredible book with Mark out there flying airplanes and helicopters without navigation is why no one was coming back again. And I'll just jump in for a second. I mean, you had basically, you left Africa after your third assassination attempt, correct? Right, right. Uh, we, when we took on a car, we took on this cartel of commercial poachers, and they were government sponsored, by the way, uh, who are operating in that national park. And uh, I started flying very aggressively against them with my Cessna. Uh, because there were, there were no game scout patrols or anything because the scouts had been, there were only seven scouts in a camp on the edge of the, uh, on the plateau above the park. And they only had one functioning rifle and one round of ammunition to protect a park the size of Delaware. Wow. And so we started helping them and trying to, trying to control poaching. And I started diving on the poachers with my airplane and backfiring the engine to make them think I was shooting at them. And, all sorts of things because uh, that's how dire the situation was. Uh, it, one of my early flights, I started noticing on the ground below me what looked like white marbles everywhere. Everywhere I flew in the park, there were just white marbles, what looked like white marbles. And as we conducted our ground surveys, we began discovering that those marbles were in fact poached elephant skulls. Oh my God. Thousands and thousands and thousands of them. And wow. uh, that's when we realized how bad it So we knew we had to do something. We couldn't in good conscience do a theoretical study on lions and ignore the problem of elephant poaching. And it wasn't just elephants. They were killing virtually everything that had meat on its bones uh, larger than a deer, uh, a white-tailed deer, or about that size. Well, well, Mark, I might point out that most people probably would have left. I mean, this is this when you say cartel, this, this is really big business about elephants and et cetera. But um, jumping ahead in the story again, I'd like to. I know you left after your third attempt. How many years were you in that area? Because you basically succeeded. You actually did what uh, you wanted to do, correct? Oh, yeah, we did. We, we uh, not only. Um, trained and equipped the scouts, but we, um, more importantly, probably, we, we began um, a lending, pro, a soft loan program. Uh, we set up a fund and we loaned people uh, money to start their own small sustainable businesses with local markets so that they would have an alternative at Poacher. We set up everything from beekeeping and raising sunflowers and pressing the seeds to make oil and using the cake and fish farms to raise fish for protein. Um, we set up sewing co-ops and, and carpentry co-ops and uh, um, made uh, rat traps out of old truck bodies and anything we could uh, to stimulate um, it, an economy there uh, and as an alternative to poaching. And it worked. It worked. It took a while, but it did work. And you want to let the audience know what's there today? I mean, it's still, you're, you're basically, your program is still there and thriving, correct? Yes, it is. The North Alamba today is probably the best protected national park in Africa. And, uh, 
and uh, the elephants are recovering and uh, uh, elephants and buffalo and other large mammalian species are being seen in areas where they haven't been seen in 40 or 50 years and uh, and um, the people are doing very well still have their businesses going and uh, so it was a win-win for for every Buddy, for the wildlife community and the human community. And our whole objective was to reestablish that essential symbiosis between human, human communities and wildlife communities because they are interdependent. And, I mean, what um, you mean? and we, 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 I always told you, we'll come home when the elephants can go to the river in daylight and drink in peace without worrying about poachers. And, and that's in fact what's happened today. So. Fantastic. We're very pleased with the outcome. And what's although, the, what's the, name of the park? Although I, I they, tried, they tried very their very best to kill me before we got to that point, but um, right. we managed to survive. So, well, I mean, there's many incredible parts of the conversation. With one of the biggest ones that you accomplished, really, pretty much an impossible task. I mean, so, and how many years did that take to do that? How I many how many years were you there in that area? We were there. Well, in that particular area, the North Luangwe, we were there for 11 years. 11 years. No, it's an incredible story. Then I know you, without going into a lot of details, you, you've told me a story about really three assassination attempts. With so the last one, you had about 24 hours to leave, and you did. And then you ended up in Idaho and buying a ranch for, mm -hmm. as a reserve for grizzly bears and wolves, which, of course, didn't make it particularly popular with the local ranchers there. And can you describe... Yeah. Can you describe a little bit, how, how long have you been in Idaho? Well, gosh, we've been in Idaho now since 1996, full time. And then again, you took over, we've been to your ranch a couple of times, and we saw the fact that you had an area that had been devastated by the loggers, correct? They had taken out all the cedar trees and really had destroyed the wetlands, and your goal, if I remember correctly, was to create a preserve, to restore wetlands, create a preserve for the grizzly bears and wolves. Is that, and you actually accomplished that also, correct? Yes, we did. And uh, the property is now um, protected with easements and, uh, and I've restored the wetland over, took a 20 year period of restoration of the wetland and we're getting all kinds of wildlife now feeding into the wetland and um, grizzly bears, wolves, uh, moose, mule deer, white-tailed deer, otters, you name it. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure. I always like to say when you give to nature, she gives back in spades and that's always been our experience. But looking and back on it, true here at Thunder. But looking back on your life, it's got to feel pretty good. Well, it does. Yeah, it was, it was very hard. I mean, it wasn't easy by any stretch, but uh, it was very rewarding. Can you describe briefly the situation that occurred that you ended up seeking medical care, particularly spine surgery? Well, yeah, I was, um, I was uh, in my office one day in, in, in uh, 2006, in the end of July, and I, I, I don't do well in offices. I have to be outside. So I bolted out the door, grabbed my horse, threw him in a trailer, horse trailer, went down the road and picked up a neighbor and we headed off into the mountains to look for grizzly bears. Uh, 
above Libby, Montana in the Cabinet Wilderness area. And uh, uh, to make a long story short, I, uh, we were coming out of the mountains in, in dark and uh, my horse suddenly uh, didn't want me on his back anymore. I don't know what happened to him, I'll never know. But he suddenly, it was pitch dark virtually and uh, he lowered his head, started bucking and uh, took off down the, the trail as fast as he could go bucking like a fool. And uh, I stayed on his back for four bucks and then I flew through the air and I thought to myself as I was airborne, boy, this is gonna hurt. <laughs> I didn't realize how badly and, uh, but I didn't have long to wait because before I hit the ground, I landed across a log. Um, course I didn't know what hit me it was pitch dark and uh but later I would discover it was a log that caught me up on the left arm and it collapsed my chest on the left side and broke my back in two places and punctured my lungs and um, um my friend who was riding my other horse ran up and he said how bad is it and I said I could hardly speak but I managed to get out in a hoarse whisper that my back was broken. And he said, well, we got to stand you up and get you out of here. I said, don't, don't, don't touch me. He started to lift me off the ground. I said, don't right. touch me, my back's broken. Well, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, get out and get help as fast as you can. So that began a long night for me. And uh, I, my horse ran off with all my clothes and my fire starter and all my emergency gear. So all I had when Sam left to go down the mountain to get help was uh, his little Lee Jack. He has, Sam was about five foot three, so he left me his, his uninsulated Lee jacket. <laughs> and it was in a jacket. And, it was, freezing. and uh, it was freezing that night, right? Wasn't there still snow on the ground a bit, or was it? No, there was no snow. It was in on the, actually, it was by then, it was July 31st, late at night, and, uh, but it was getting cold. And it was already fall at that elevation. So the temperature that night got down to just above freezing. And uh, I was I was very hypothermic uh, uh, during the night. And I, it, uh, yeah, Sam, Sam went out and uh, rode all the way out and uh, got help. Uh, the search and rescue team from Libby and they started back up. But uh, I'm cutting through a lot of of this, but uh, quickly, but <laughs> uh, they got back to me. And by the time they did, I was severely hypothermic. And uh, and uh, in the meantime, I'd had an encounter with a, what I think was a grizzly bear in the dark. And uh, because wow. I, turns out I'd fallen off my horse right in the middle of a huckleberry patch. And, oh, geez. <laughs> and during the night, I heard a bear growling and chomping very near me. And, uh, and uh, I'm pretty sure it was a bear, but by the time I heard it, uh, I, the bear also heard Sam coming back on his horse. So he took off then and uh, eventually Sam found me and uh, stayed with me for a couple more hours until search and rescue got there. And they um, strapped me to a litter and they hiked me for four and a half hours back up the mountain to a high alpine meadow where we arrived at dawn and uh, we waited there for a helicopter at sunrise and uh, chopper flew me to Kalispell, Montana, where they confirmed that I had a broken back in two places and uh, a crushed chest and a punctured lung. And uh, they carried out an emergency surgery on my back where they fused my back, my spine from uh, thoracic eight to lumbar two. Um, Wait, I'm gonna jump that in was my second. first. Uh, 
I'm going to jump in for a second uh, here from the spine sturgeon standpoint. So what I do know Mark's story pretty well at this point, but the fusion from his eighth thoracic vertebrae do, down to the um, second lumbar vertebrae. And a lot of people think when there's a broken back, there's automatically paraplegia. He did not have any neurological problems. They did an operation to stabilize, uh, stabilize an unstable spine. And generally speaking, a success rate of that operation is pretty high. Probably 9% of people do fine, et cetera, no real problems without chronic pain. Usually two weeks of severe pain by four weeks, pain is gone. And by four to six months, the normal course is to heal and to actually move on with life without restrictions at all. And I'm gonna edit here a little bit, jumping forward again, Mark did develop severe chronic pain. I'm gonna describe this in a second, what that was like. And then how many years later did you have a second operation, Mark? They fused L23? Uh, 2012. 2012, and what year did the accident happen? Uh, the year, uh, 2006. Okay, so six years later, they did a one-level fusion. And what happened is that he had degeneration below his rods, which happens frequently. He had degeneration between his second and third lumbar vertebrae, actually a degeneration at all his lumbar spine. And one of the reasons I actually have quit my spine surgical practice because there's a tremendous amount of spine surgery being done on spines that are simply normal for your age. And most people that have heard this podcast know my lines is that disc degeneration does not cause back pain. There's no connection. Yet there's a tremendous amount of spine fusions being done on disc degeneration. And Mark had really severe pain all over his body. They fused one level. Again, disc degeneration does not cause pain. And then, Mark, what year did I see you in the office? That was about 2013, am I thinking? Somewhere in 2012. Uh, that, was, that was 2014, I believe, David. Right. So from the accident in 2006 until 2014, Mark was really in quite severe chronic pain. And two surgeons had recommended some major, major 10, 12 hour surgeries. And again, there's somewhat of a concept in spine surgery that if all else fails, let's try surgery. He was tilted forward a little bit, but not that badly. And, the, and then somehow the idea was to go and break his spine into, do what's called an osteotomy to straighten up a little bit straighter somehow straightening him up a little bit was gonna make his pain go away. But we also know statistically the chances of that operation working is about 20% or less. The chance of making him worse is about 40%. But I wanna jump back in the story, Mark, and just describe your life from, I do know after that second operation that your pain became much worse. But just describe the last couple of years before you saw me, what your life was like as far as being in chronic pain. Uh, well, I, um, I was constantly suffering pain levels of between six and 10. Um, it just got worse and worse as my nervous system, we now know, became hypersensitized to pain. Um, uh, I, I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, when you carry around pain on, at that level, um, it was like, uh, I've said this before, David, but it's, it was like having a monkey on my back or maybe even more, a more apt, a, a leech attached to my body, a big leech that was sucking away my vitality. And I mean, when you suffer that kind of pain, you, you're just, you can't be very functional. 
Right. There's nothing. I was literally walking around holding on to furniture and falling down. I could hardly get to the barn to feed my horses and get back into the house again. Right. And um, I was preoccupied with it. So. Where, where was the pain at? Which part of your back was the pain at? Well, it was pretty much all up and down my back. Um, and it seemed to move around. The, the most acute part would seem to move around. But um, I would say the worst, well, it was both above and below the, the, the rods, the, okay. the fused part of my spine. And, and you had, uh, I would you say they were equally. And you had a lot of sharp stabbing uh, pains also, correct? Yes, I did. The other thing that people don't realize is how this affects your sociality, your relationships with other people. I'm pretty sure that was one reason my marriage was failing at the time. Um, my friends were becoming a little more distant, at least I felt they were, because initially we all, they tried to include me in gatherings and so forth, but I would collapse. I couldn't sit down in a chair and then stand up again without collapsing my legs would give out and I would fall across the table and scatter dinnerware and <laughs> wow. make a, what I felt like was a fool to myself. And, it wasn't, it wasn't and, uh, and that happened over again until I just quit trying to go out and socialize. And so I became more isolated and, and um, more you know, locked into myself. And uh, you again, were, it was like having this monkey. And you're also on high dose narcotics, correct? I was, yeah. I was taking, uh, <laughs> I tried at various times, Norco, Neurontin, Ultron, Oxycodone, Oxycontin, several different kinds of muscle reactors, sleep aids. One night I took seven different drugs to try to get some sleep and uh, somehow survived <laughs> because I shouldn't have. But that brings up the other thing. I mean, I became suicidal. I, I kept having more and more having thoughts that I just didn't want to go on like this. And, right. Uh, right. So, um, yeah. So it's it's well, just, uh, it's that kind of pain is just totally consuming. <coughs> well, we're going to stop this part of the podcast now. And what we're going to do is concentrate on the second podcast, which will air next week, is that. You get a guy who, with his young wife, went out to the Africa. Not only did he go out there with anything initially, when he ran across these poachers who were not nice guys, that he ended up accomplishing creating a game reserve without precedent, literally saving thousands and thousands of elephants, other wildlife, creating an economy, and just accomplish things that most human beings don't even remotely dream of doing instead of looking at danger and running from it, he went right into it. In the big picture, this is an incredible story. This guy was not somebody who was a wilting flower, obviously went right at it. Then on top of that, he goes back to, to the States instead of taking a life of leisure, because he wrote this best-selling book, The Cry of the Kalahari. He went ahead and bought a large 700-acre ranch for wolves and grizzlies. Not only did he work on a preserve for the wolves and grizzlies, he did an incredible job with the wetlands and restoring the environment there. And then in the middle of this, he gets this injury that again, I think 20 years earlier would have been just a simple operation, no problems, no pain moving forward, getting back to full activity. 
And instead, he ends up with eight or nine years of extreme chronic pain, high-dose narcotics, to the point of stabbing pains, falling down, becoming unsocial, had two spine surgeries, recommended major surgery. And Mark, what I'd like to do is to pick up our story um, when you first met me in the office that day, I think, what, 2014, 15, somewhere in there? Uh, four, I believe it was 14, David, yes. Uh -huh. And also, in, the, in the spring of and what I'll say on this for this podcast here to conclude is that Mark is never had surgery. He went back to a fully functional life. For the most part, the pain he has is quite minimal. There's one thing I want to share in the next podcast is that he and I have stayed in close touch. We've become good friends. And, you know, it's an up and down process, but in the big picture, he's basically living the life that you can't imagine, doing things, throwing bills, a hair around, lifting, moving, pushing. He never had surgery. He has essentially no pain, no medications. And his story is unusual because it's such a dramatic turnaround so quickly, which we'll talk about on the next podcast. But the, the reality is this is what I see all the time. And this is why I'm asking Mark to be on the show because chronic pain is a solvable problem. And people think oh, I've been in pain for a long time. It's incredibly severe. I'm high dose narcotics. There's no hope. And of course, Mark, two things I want to ask you really quickly before we go is that you lost hope, correct? I did. I did. I actually flirted with suicide three times. Right. And then you had high-dose narcotics, which, you know, there's a bit of a misnomer in the medical world that people like being on drugs. And as you pointed out, being on narcotics is no fun. Really, nobody, really very few people like being on narcotics, correct? Well, yeah, and it, it turned out I, I actually became dependent on them and had to, uh, went through hell getting off of them for th three different times. Um, right. One, the worst, was I didn't get any sleep for 10 days and I had uh, tremors and cold sweats. And I mean, when I say I didn't get any sleep, I got no sleep for 10 right. days. Right. And so it was I, not fun. The I, narcotics became a problem in themselves. Right. Pardon and, me? And I should finish up this podcast really quickly. Just describe, take a minute if you describe your general level of pain and function now? Well, I'm, <laughs> I would say that I'm uh, probably 85 to 90% of what I was before I had all this happen uh, in terms of functionality. I am older, <laughs> which right. accounts for some loss of functionality, but, um, but uh, I, I don't commonly take a, an analgesic I'm not on any narcotics. I take a, a, a Tylenol or two uh, every few days or a couple weeks. Um, if I use my back hard, and I do sometimes, I chainsaw, I hike, I ride horses, I do everything pretty much that I did before. I don't do it at the same level. I'm 75. And, and uh, you're still throwing on bales of hay, am I correct? Right. Every morning and every night for my horses. <laughs> how, much, how much is a bill of hay? So, well, the ones I have weigh about 80 pounds. Okay. 75 years old, throw on bales of hay, no narcotics. And from the time that you met me and started in the process, how long did it take to go pretty much pain-free? Oh, <laughs> that that's a part of the story that blows me away is that 
I walked out of your office that day in, I think it was in early May of 14, and uh, you had said to me, well, at least try the writing, the, the creative writing is, I, they called it negative writing in those days, I think now it's called something else. But anyway, and, uh, you know, I was very skeptical and I, but I thought, what the heck, why, why not? So I went to a hotel at night on the beach with my friend and uh, I said, well, I'll try it. And I sat down for a few minutes and wrote down all the negative thoughts in longhand that I could think of and tore them up and threw them in the wastebasket and went to sleep. And um, I woke up the next morning and uh, the pain was already much diminished. And by within 36 hours, I was probably 85% pain free. And I've actually improved on that and uh, never looked back. I do have relapses as we know. And, uh, but now I have the tools to deal with, deal with those. And we'll talk about that, I guess, in the next podcast. Mark, thanks a lot for talking to us. I mean, as you know, I love, I've heard your story multiple times. There's things I heard today, which I've never heard before. And it's an incredible story. And for me, personally, it's been very inspiring, extremely unexpected, how he went from that amount of disability to pain-free. But I, what, I want Mark to, what I want to talk to Mark about, and he and I have kept a little close touch over the last few years, is that he did go to pain-free relatively quickly. He is back functioning, full function. None of this is a straight line process. I also have my own personal chronic pain issues that come and go. And it's not a very hard process when you understand the problem. And the turnarounds are dramatic very, very frequently. But again, understanding the neuroscience of chronic pain, understanding actually implementing the tools that make the difference. Um, people go to pain-free all the time. We have hundreds and hundreds of patients going to pain-free with different, different variations of Mark's story. But Mark, thank you very much for being here today, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, David, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.